0: Hi, I'm Nigel Wilkinson welcoming you to this Wednesday edition of Back to the Bible Jamaica as we continue our series in Romans chapter 5 through to 8 entitled The Power of the Gospel Today we'll pick up in our study from where we left off yesterday looking at God's magnificent love for us Please stay with us as Bible teacher John Neufeld Shares from Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through to 11 on the full extent of Christ's love.
1: Mrs. Johnson loved to open up her Sunday school class for five-year-olds with a question. Unfortunately, her questions had become a little obvious, so she decided to make it a little tougher. So on this day, she began by asking her five-year-olds, Class, I'm thinking about something. It has four legs, has brown furs, stores nuts, has a long curled tail, and runs up trees and chatters at people walking by. What am I thinking about? And immediately little Sally's hand popped up, and Mrs. Johnson beamed <laughs> her star pupil. Yes, Sally, what's the answer? And Sally said, I know the answer is Jesus, but in my heart I think it's a squirrel. I fear I'm being like Mrs. Johnson when I ask my question. How much does God love you? And I fear just like Sally in Mrs. Johnson's class, you'll know the answer without even thinking. He loved me so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for my sins. Indeed, it seems that's always the answer, even though it would be nice if just for once the answer is, it's a squirrel or I don't feel loved. And yet the answer to how much we are loved by God, described in Romans 5, 6-11, has nothing to do with squirrels and everything to do with the cross. But it is here that I'm afraid that many of us have already stopped listening. I'm speaking to people who have grown up in church and who have been to Sunday school and have been raised with the idea of the cross. I fear that some of you do not have adult thoughts about your faith or adult thoughts about the cross and having been told that God loved you enough to send his son. Well, that was the answer when you were five years old and it's still the answer today. No further thought required. You know, some time ago, a number of years now, Mel Gibson produced a film entitled The Passion of the Christ. You know, what was for me so fascinating when that film was first released was how controversial that film was right from its beginning. And what was even more fascinating was how confused many Christians were about the controversy. It was as if many Christians couldn't understand why a film about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins could create such a stir. It's as if we never realized that the New Testament made it plain that the preaching of the cross is an offense, a stumbling block, a scandal, and an object of ridicule in the world. It divides all humanity into two camps, those who find in the cross the ultimate expression of the deep, deep, deep love of God. And those who find it a message so outrageous and scandalous that they mock and protest and even become violent to stop the message. See, once you understand the cross from a more deep and insightful perspective, you'll understand those two reactions. See, my cry for those who say, I already know the answer to how much God loved me. Might I say, there is so much both you and I don't know about the cross, so many questions, that if we ask them rightly, we are swimming in a profound mystery. Now, before we plunge right into our analysis of Romans 5, 6 to 11, let me invite you to notice the very first word in this paragraph. In the Greek, it's a very little word, gar, in English, for. For. In verses 6 to 11, it isn't really a new paragraph. It's a logical extension of what was said in the previous paragraph. Paul begins Romans 5 by teaching that once any person is justified by faith, which, by the way, for Paul, is shorthand for saying once they accept the gospel that Christ died for them and paid the penalty for their sins and have begun to trust in him, once that has happened... That person has gone from a previous state of warfare with God to a state where they are now at peace with God. They have become the object of God's love and are no longer the object of God's wrath. But now comes the question, how deeply does God love me? Let's read verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. It is here that I fear we have concluded that we already know this passage all too well, and so we skipped this passage by too quickly. Let's see if we can catch a few nuances that might be noteworthy. Let's start with the word weak, while we were still weak. The NIV translates that same word as powerless. Some have suggested that the word is also roughly equivalent to the word handicapped, while we were yet morally handicapped. Well, perhaps, but, but notice the kinds of words that Paul uses. Indeed, I might say that Paul uses a set of words that he piles up almost like one on top of the other. So we notice the word weak, and then later in that same verse, he uses the term ungodly acting without reliance upon or accountable to God while we were ungodly. And after that, in verse 8, the word sinner, someone who transgresses or breaks the law of God. And then later, all the way down to verse 10, he will use the word enemy. While we were the sworn enemies of God. Now, putting those four words together, weak, ungodly, sinners and enemies, we should see that however we think about the death of Christ, it is the most unlikely of all deaths. Here is Paul's conclusion. Christ detected in us not a single inclination towards him. We had no desire to end the hostility between us and God. Indeed, we were determined to press forward, to expand our hostilities with God, to take the war to new levels of aggression. In this context, weak does not mean that we were unwilling or unable to fight against God. Weak refers to an inability to change our moral inclination. We were weak in our ability to change our propensity to keep fighting. Like someone who has anger management issues and is beating his wife, he's weak. He is morally unable to change his patterns of behavior. Every small thing sets him off afresh. That's how weakness should be understood in this passage. So at the outset, Paul wants us to understand who Christ died for. He died for people whose spiritual, moral, and volitional direction led them towards ever-increasing hostility against the God who made them. That's for whom Christ died. Then we must understand when he died. I want you to look again at verse 6. Do you see the phrase, at the right time? See, this idea that Christ came at the right time is an idea deeply rooted in Scripture. It's at the heart of Christian theology about the cross. So, for instance, listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. The idea behind this text is that when God created the world, he already had the cross in mind. In other words, God created a world that would have a bloody, cruel cross at the center, that the cross would be the centerpiece of all of God's works. Then in Galatians 4, verse 4, Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Not only had God determined that he would create a world with a cross in it, He also determined at what time in the ongoing history of this world the cross should take place. Nothing was left to chance, all was meticulously arranged by God. That God would first choose Abraham. Then he would rescue his people from Egypt. Set up a ritual of the sacrifice of animals. That Israel would miserably fail to keep the law. And then even the entire cultural background at the time of Christ, the Roman government, the Jewish leaders, all of this was meticulously planned out by God. Not one thing was left to chance. Now... Sometimes Bible scholars will engage in a debate as to whether when Paul says at that right time, did he mean in the fulfillment of his eternal promises like I just said, or did he mean at the time when we were weak and ungodly? But here I think we don't have to choose. Christ not only chose when he would die, he also chose for whom he would die. This then is why Paul's illustration makes so much sense. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person. Now, please notice that Paul is not saying, very rarely will someone die for a righteous cause. In the original, he uses a masculine noun, meaning a righteous man or a righteous person. People die for their country frequently. People have been going to war for their causes and countries and ideologies and religions and belief systems. All of humanity is known for making these kinds of sacrifices. That's because even though we know the people whom we might be dying for don't deserve it, the cause does. We need to prevent communism from taking over or militant Islam or some form of dictatorship. We need to fight for freedom. The idea behind this is that to die in a great cause is a noble ideal. Human history reinforces this over and over again. But the idea of dying for a person, an individual, man or woman, a swapping of your life for another, is an event that happens infrequently, although it does happen. And when it does happen, it only happens because the person in question is seen as worthy. Who would think it honorable to give one's life to save a rapist or a child molester or a serial killer? The more evil the person, the less virtuous the sacrifice, at least so we think. If you had died to save Adolf Hitler, no one would applaud you. More when we come back.
0: This is Back to the Bible, Bible teaching you can trust. If you are a regular listener to Back to the Bible Jamaica, you've probably wondered why is it that we've been so heavily promoting the correspondence courses for children. Well, surveys have shown that 83% of Christians make their first commitment to Jesus between the ages of 4 and 14, that is, when they are children or early youth. Further surveys done indicate that children aged 14 to 18 have a 14% probability of doing so whereas unbelieving adults aged 19 and over have just a 6% probability of becoming Christians. The data clearly illustrates the importance of influencing our children to consider making a decision to follow Christ as their Lord and Savior. In fact, because the 4 to 14 age group slice of the pie is so large, Many refer to this age range as the four fourteen window. The question is, is your child or ward in the 4-14 window of their lives? Then why not get them enrolled in a free mailing Bible correspondence course today? It's just like those that helped me and many others to become rooted in the word of God When we were children. For information on how your child or ward can sign up for these free mail-in Bible correspondence courses, please call 876-920-8311. That number once again, 876-920-8311. As we get back to the Bible, you know, when we read this passage we're focusing on today about Christ dying for us, there can be a sense of familiarity that may cause us to miss the depth of what Paul is really saying. This idea of Christ choosing to die for people who would not only reject Him, but actually (laughs) are enemies of God is incredible. It means that his sacrifice is totally unique and incomparable. It's an act that displays his divinity, glory, and power. Let's now rejoin Bible teacher John Newfeld in Romans chapter five. We are looking at verses nine through to eleven, as he helps us discover what reconciliation shows us about Christ's love.
1: We have been making the argument that there are no human parallels to the death of Jesus. You know, some time ago my wife and I were visiting dear friends in the U.S. and it was Sunday and we went off to church. In the parking lot I saw a bumper sticker on the back of a pickup truck which said, Two people died for you. Jesus Christ and the American soldier. It's the kind of thing one sees on occasion in the U.S. but you actually never see that in Canada. Now, look, I'm not wishing to denigrate the sacrifices that are made by military people, but I was looking at nonsense, even blasphemous nonsense. The sacrifice of Jesus is not in the same category as the sacrifice of a soldier. The soldier had given his life for a worthy cause. Christ had given his life for a person who was morally, spiritually, volitionally, and in every way profoundly evil, in that this person Christ died for hated what Jesus loved most. Jesus loved his Father above all other things, and the person Jesus died for hated Christ's Father above all other things. See, unless we paint the picture that way, we simply do not do justice to what Paul is saying. Now let's read the rest of our passage, Romans 5, 9 to 11. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want you to notice, in this short paragraph, there is a repetition we must not miss. Twice, Paul uses the words, much more. Much more through his blood and death shall we be saved from the wrath of God. In verse 9, and then in verse 10, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What we have here is a form of a traditional argument that is very frequent in Jewish thinking. We call this moving from the greater to the lesser. It goes this way. If the greater is true, much more is the lesser also true. So, for instance, let's say we're hiking through a forest somewhere and we come upon a bridge that goes across a river far below. And you say to me, I'm not going across that bridge because I don't know if it'll hold my weight. I respond by saying, well, I was here yesterday and a big truck crossed this little bridge without a problem. So if a truck can cross it, how much more easily can you get across it? Now, just so we're certain, whenever you come to this kind of an argument from greater to lesser, the point of the argument is not that the greater is true, but the point is that the lesser is true. In my bridge example, the point is not that a truck can get across that bridge. The point is that you can cross the bridge. The entire emphasis is on the lesser. So then, from this argument, look at what's being said. First, the greater. Since it's true that when we put our faith in Christ and in his cross, we are justified. That is, our sins are paid for. Since I'm saved from my sin, then how much more so will I be saved from the wrath of God or the anger of God? Now, wrath is such an important part of what we mean when we speak about our salvation. And we live in a culture that discounts it. It was said of Henry David Thoreau that as he lay dying, his sister asked him if he had made peace with God. And Thoreau answered, I didn't know that we'd argued. But Christians understand we had argued. But someone will say, wait, I don't get it. Isn't the wrath of God a greater issue than my sin? How can this be the lesser? But but think of it this way. Once my sins are forgiven, that's the greater issue. I must know that God is never upset with me again. I know Christians who know they are forgiven and yet are convinced that God is displeased with them. And this, I think, is what Paul is driving at. Once having been justified by faith, you have the smile of God on your life. Once Christ died for you in your hell-bound, reckless God-dishonoring sinfulness, and in your intense, unbridled hatred of God, once Christ carried this transgression from you, that ensures that the Father will not visit you with his punishing hand. Now, let's take the next much more statement. Once you are reconciled to God so that no impediment stood in your relationship between you and God, which, as you can see, follows sequentially from the last idea. Once God is not angry and once I am reconciled, much more will I be saved by his life. I hope you can see following the sequence of thought, being saved by the life of Christ is the highlight here. This is what Paul has been driving at. But what can that mean? Now, if you're careful here, you will notice that verse 10 doesn't say that we are saved unto life, but rather it says we are saved by his life. But now remember that we're going from the greater to the lesser. The greater is that we were once enemies of God, but now we're reconciled. Imagine a marriage that blew apart because of adultery. One partner who says, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. That's because they can't forget the hurt, the reason for the lack of trust. All that's reasonable. Now imagine coming to a place where that moment of adultery no longer mattered. They've moved beyond that, from forgiveness to reconciliation. Now if that was possible between us and God, how much more will we be saved by the life of Christ? Now, what is the life of Christ? I think the most likely thing here is that Paul is referring to the resurrected life of Christ. Since the death of Jesus cleared up all the difficulties, how much more will the resurrection of Jesus save us? Look at it this way. If the dying Savior reconciled us unto God, how much more will the ever-living Savior keep us forever saved by his life? Now, the rest of the Bible says much about this. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews thinks is the benefit of the resurrection of Jesus in Hebrews 7.25. There he says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, there's the life of Christ, to make intercession for them. Here in Hebrews we see that Christ's resurrection life means he never ceases to be our great high priest who always pleads our case before the Father. Now, that is a rich truth, but is that what Paul is referring to here? I actually think that while Paul would agree with that thought in Hebrews, he means something else here. In chapter 6 of Romans, the next chapter, Paul will develop a theme of union with Christ, united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, and we will discuss that in depth when we get there, but for now. Paul wants to tell us that our life is bound to the resurrection life of Jesus. In chapter 8, he will assure us that death itself cannot threaten us now. And if we are that secure, Paul adds, we rejoice in God. Our joy is unimpeded. After all, our reconciliation never depended upon our efforts, but upon Christ's efforts on our behalf. So when we get to chapter 6 to 8, we'll see clearly that Paul is helping believers grow in Christ to put to death all sinful inclinations and to live fully in the power of the Holy Spirit. But here in chapter 5, Paul wants us to settle in on this truth. He wants us to know just how secure we are in Christ. See, in this series, I want to invite you into a greater adventure of walking in holiness. But at least in my estimation, I'm convinced that many believers never seem to make progress because they are convinced that God was watching over their sinful ways and is not impressed with us. After all, he saw what you did last night. And so from a spirit of condemnation and guilt, we never make progress. And what Paul is doing is trying to get us to look at the only thing that matters. You've been justified by the sacrifice of Jesus, don't you know? And Christ died for you when you were a rebel, don't you know? And God now looks upon you because Christ suffered for you with a smile, don't you know? And there are no outstanding issues between you and God, don't you know? And therefore, if all that's true, how much more will the ongoing life of Jesus infuse you with a God kind of life for all of eternity?
0: Amen. Thanks for your message today, Dr. John. I want to go back a little to, you know, you mentioned about Adolf Hitler. You know, should we really be using that kind of extreme example?
1: Yeah, I know that's such a good question because in many ways we're not Adolf Hitler at all. But on the other hand, if we consider what our sin actually means before God, that we are uh, denying his glory, which is a terrible sin, uh, then we should see sin in the most extreme fashion imaginable. And once we see it that way, we also see that God's mercy for us is in the most extreme fashion imaginable. Years ago I heard someone saying, you know, Christ died because he owed it to us. But here's the gospel. God owed us nothing. But Christ gave us everything, and that is the beauty of being saved.
0: Thanks for joining us today here on Back to the Bible. Brought to you by Back to the Bible Broadcast Jamaica, in partnership with listeners who give in support of this ministry. Our office is located at Shop Number Twenty Two, Hagler Park Plaza, Kingston Ten. Our office hours are from Mondays through to Fridays, from eight thirty a.m. through to four p.m. We can be contacted via email at Back to the Bible Ministry at gmail dot com our office number is eight seven six nine two six five seven six five and our cell and whatsapp number is eight seven six three three seven six two nine five to listen to this study again or some of our previous studies, they are available in our free mobile app along with other Bible engagement material. Just look for BTTB Jamaica in your app store. That's BTTB Jamaica. You can also listen and download our studies from other podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Be sure to look for Back to the Bible Jamaica. Well, what an encouraging and deeply relevant word for us today as we've looked at the full extent of Christ's love for the believer. Paul knows that the key to our sanctification and growth is truly knowing what is meant for Christ to die on the cross for our sins. How does that affect the rest of our life today? Well, the gospel isn't just for new believers. These truths are indeed for every single one of us to know and apply. It is our prayer that our study so far is giving you a greater appreciation for how much Christ has shown you his love through his death and resurrection. Don't miss tomorrow's study as Bible teacher John Newfeld will be teaching on the topic of original sin as we continue in our series, The Power of the Gospel. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Jamaica, seeking to bring you closer to Jesus today than you were yesterday.